It, it's uh, great to be back with you this morning as we're uh, digging into chapter 4 of Philippians. Um, so please do turn there with me in a copy of God's Word if you have one with you, um, either physically on a device or, or whatever. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, uh, please do feel free to pick up one of those red hardback, um, book one, uh, hardback ones from the, the pews. Uh, and indeed, if you don't have a copy of God's Word at home, then please take that with you. Uh, we'd love that to be our gift for you. Um, chapter 4 of Philippians uh, is, is one of those chapters that as we read through, if you've, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been around church for a while, there may be some familiar phrases that we hear here. Uh, chapter 4 contains many of the, those well-known one-liners from Philippians, um, as we'll see. And, and in this chapter, we're going to see wonderful verses on rejoicing, on prayer, on anxiety, on contentment, uh, and many others. Uh, and many of those are, are those individual verses that, that some of us may well have committed to memory uh, over our time of following Jesus. Uh, not only do we want to commit them to memory, we want to live by what we, what we read and learn there. And uh, I, I once heard someone say that, that anything memorable is portable. And, and so the, the joy of memorizing God's word is a good practice to get into. Uh, and certainly some of these one-liners, these, these single verses from Philippians are wonderful treasures to lock into our memory because then they're portable. Uh, we can carry them with us as we live. What is memorable is portable. Uh, and so the reality of these, these individual nuggets of truth that can be stored in our minds and, and taken root in our heart is a great gift to us. Um, and, and I would commend that to you, absolutely. The, the slight danger of doing that is I would never want us to then just uh, live by individual verses that we want to see the scope of what God is saying through this whole chapter, indeed this whole book, indeed his whole word. Uh, we don't want to reduce his word to just a, a series of, uh, of coffee cup platitudes that, that sound good, that we can bring out in moments of need. Of course we want to do that. But the truth goes way deeper than that. And indeed when we see it in the bigger picture, uh, we'll see the, the power and the, the life-altering power that they carry. Um, and so today uh, we are going to go back into chapter 4, of Philippians, and we're going to take a bit more of a wide-angle view over these verses, certainly the first nine verses, um, because I think God has much to say to us as we see them as a collection, um, as well as what he teaches us as we study them and meditate on them as individual verses. Um, and so we're going to read all of uh, verses 2 to, down to verse 9 of chapter 4, and as we do so, I'd encourage you to, to watch out for the theme of peace is one of the things, that, one of the key things that we're going to be looking at this morning. So the, the theme of peace. Um, indeed, because there is so much treasure within these verses, uh, I do intend to come back uh, to some of these uh, in the next session that we have uh, in a couple of weeks' time in Philippians. Um, but for now, let's read uh, Philippians chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 2 and working it all the way down to verse 9. Um, and Jonathan, at the back, if you happen to have the clicker, I forgot to pick it up. If you wouldn't mind running it up to me, that would be brilliant just as I read. So Philippians 4, starting at verse 2. I plead with Uria and, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Thanks. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose name are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. These verses are wonderful. You can see how we're not going to deal with them all this morning in the depth that they deserve. Uh, but there are many treasures to dig into. And so uh, what I would love us to do this morning, though, is just to take the three main blocks that we read there from verses 2 to 3 and verses 4 to 7 and verses 8 and 9. Uh, and I wonder if you picked up the theme of peace that I think runs through each one. And this is how I think it's going to break down for us. So in verse 2 to 3, we see how how God is teaching us how we can be at peace with one another through the uh, unity of mind. Verses 4 to 7, we see how we can be guarded by peace through joyful prayer. And then in verses 8 and 9, we can see how we can be in the presence of peace through right living and right thinking. So these verses show us how we can be at peace with others, how we can be guarded by peace in our hearts and minds, and know the presence of peace himself as we live our daily lives. And so there's a lot for us to work our way through here. Uh, Let's dive into verses two and three, where we see that we can be at peace with one another through unity of mind. And so Paul highlights here in verses two and three, two, two women who have had a disagreement and therefore need to be brought back to that state of being at peace with one another. Let me read verses two and three again. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. And, and so we see here Paul naming, publicly naming a couple of people. He's done that already in this book. At the end of chapter 2, he commended Timothy and Epaphroditus. And now he's naming these two specific women. Um, but, but perhaps we could see it uh, with a different purpose. His aim here is not simply to commend what they have done, although he does that. But it's also in an attempt to lovingly restore their relationship. I plead with you both. These, these These are clearly women who helped Paul immensely. He says that they contended at his side. In the cause of the gospel, that, that's, a, that's an image of, of soldiers side by side, shoulder to shoulder in the trenches. They contended side by side with Paul. They, they were clearly effective in gospel ministry with him. They were great examples of faithful disciples. And I think Paul now hopes that they will be an example once more, but an example this time of loving and godly restoration, loving and godly reconciliation. And Paul names them publicly, and and maybe we think, goodness, Paul, that's a bit risky. You can't call people out like that. I I think given the nature of what we know of the Philippian church, it's likely that the church knew of this conflict anyway. Paul's probably not saying anything here that everyone else wasn't already thinking. The whispers in the corner about, oh, goodness, have you seen Yuri and Syntyche? And so Paul deals with the elephant in the room and says, I plead with you both lovingly to be of the same mind in Christ. And so calling them out in public like this is actually a loving concern that Paul has for them, that they would be brought back together in a helpful way because they had so shared with him in gospel ministry before. And somehow now they've come into disagreement. We're not, we're not told what that disagreement was. We're not told who was to blame if either of them were. But what we are told is that they should be and they can be reconciled. They should be and they can be 
back at peace with one another. You see, they should be reconciled. Brothers and sisters in the Lord should be together and united. Yes, they may disagree on certain things. There may be very different personality styles. I get that. But when Christians lose sight of their unity in the Lord, then then that is a cause for concern. See, Euodia and Syntyche had been side by side with Paul in the cause of the gospel. He calls them co-workers along with Clement and others. Their names are in the book of life. These two are going to spend eternity together. So they can't allow this disagreement to fester and therefore destroy the relationship anymore, which will then have an impact on the gospel ministry that they're able to do together. And so for the sake of the gospel, Paul is pleading with them, come back, be at peace, have that same mind. Again, you should be reconciled. But Paul also shows that they can be reconciled. Not only should they, but they can be. And he shows them how they can be. And there's two things that he shows them. They can know peace between themselves again. And the way that they do that is to be of the same mind in the Lord. It's similar language that Paul used back at the start of chapter 2. When he said, make my joy complete, therefore, and be uh, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul's already said that is the way that brothers and sisters should be together. And so he's claiming now, Yuri and Syntyche, be of one mind again. Have that unity of the Lord. In other words, his intention here is, is to focus and to encourage them to focus on God again. The things that God desires, because that will bring unity among them. As, as they share in mission together, that, that single-hearted devotion to Jesus will therefore let all the other divisive things become secondary because they're so united in him. And so Paul pleads for both of them. I even love that he pleads with Uriah and I plead with Syntyche. There's an equal pleading to come back together, be united around Christ, be of the same mind in the Lord, allow Christ to be your number one and his mission to be the driving force of your life. And therefore that will unite you together. Your relationship can flourish. Unity can flourish because your relationship can be restored. Stephen Lawson said of these two, they must get in the same boat and start rowing in the same direction. They must adopt the same mindset, which will bring reconciliation and restoration in their relationship. I think that's helpful. It's not about becoming the same people, but no. Get in the same boat and row the same way. Have the same mind in Christ Jesus. Now, now this maybe sounds all very easy and straightforward. And then when we think about our own selves, uh, it becomes very difficult. There will be Christians that we disagree with in terms of personality, in terms of style, in terms of uh, ways that we do things. There will be things. Of course, there will also be people who we disagree with on issues of doctrine. That is a different issue here. This is an agreement and a shared mind in the Lord. It's a unity in the gospel. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. But those differences that we have with one another, Paul's not saying that we simply brush those under the carpet as if they don't exist. Just stick a plaster over everything and and smile and get on. No, but what he is saying here is that to foster unity, we must stop focusing on the things that divide us unless they are of theological importance or biblical standard. So stop focusing on those things and put our eyes back on Jesus. See that it's Jesus who unites us. 
It's Jesus who is at work in each of our hearts. It's Jesus who is bringing all of us, working in us by his grace so that we are all progressing in his grace. None of us are perfect yet. And so as brothers and sisters in arms in the spiritual battle we're engaged with, we stand strong together. And so you should be reconciled and you can be reconciled by having that unity of mind. And the second way in which we can be reconciled is by one another in the wider community. Paul has made this a public responsibility now for the Philippian church to help Yodia and Syntyche do this. He's also, of course, then said in verse 3, I ask you, my true companion, and we're not sure who that is. It's the person carrying the letter. Maybe it's Epaphroditus on his way back. Whoever it is, I ask you to help these women since they contended at my side. And so there's a wonderful joy that we have collectively as family in the Lord of maintaining and fostering unity together. And when we see areas of disagreement, when we see areas of conflict, we can mediate and we can bring reconciliation and we can bring peace. And we do that all in God's strength, don't we? But if we're able to do that, then we we may be at peace with one another through a unity of mind. And that unity of mind is Christ himself. And so that's verses 2 and 3. And our passage moves on, but, but not, I don't think, to a completely different topic. Peace is still a dominant theme here. And so in verses 4 to 7, we'll see how we can be guarded by peace through joyful prayer. And in this section, it seems that we have a series of unconnected bullet points, doesn't it? Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. The Lord is near. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Do not be anxious about it. It, it sounds like these might be unconnected, but I don't think they are. This is one flow of thought, and let's take slowly through it. And and then if we deal with each bullet point in a sense, and then uh, hopefully see how they all unite together. And so let's let's work our way through. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And this theme of joy has been a key theme throughout the letter so far, hasn't it? Rejoice, have joy, live joyfully. Uh, And just in case we miss it, Paul repeats it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. We can't miss it. And having the mindset of Christ is how we rejoice. Remembering who he is, remembering what he's done to save us, remembering the life he's given us now, remembering the life he's secured for us in our future, that brings joy. That kind of joy, foundational joy, which can never shift, can never shake, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in, because our joy is based on him. It is built on him and not what we face. And so we see that from later on in this chapter when Paul talks about learning the secret of being content in every and any situation in verse 12. That's not some mystical state of mind that Paul has reached. No, he has founded his joy upon the Lord. And so whatever he faces, imprisonment, shipwreck, persecution, whatever he faces, he's found the secret of being content because he can know the joy of the Lord in his heart. Rejoice in the Lord Always, I will say it again, rejoice. And then verse 5 goes on, let your gentleness be evident to all. And I wonder if this is the outworking of of a life of Christ-centered joy, that we are gentle people, reasonable people is how that's also translated. Rejoicing in the Lord leads to a gentle life, a reasonable life, because we know that this life around us is not all there is. This life around us is not the foundation of our hope and our peace and our joy. And so we can be gentle. We can live lightly and hold lightly to the things around us 
because the priorities of this life and the distractions of it that can often bring so much angst and strain, that they don't control the heart of someone who's resting in the joy of the Lord. And so the calm, gentle, reasonable demeanor that flows out of a, of a heart of joy actually becomes a way of demonstrating to the world of the joy that we have. Doesn't Paul say, let your gentleness be evident to all? And maybe this is even a link back to the conflict between Yodia and Syntyche. If we are gentle, then we will not be in conflict with one another. We'll come to see that again in a second. But how can we live in this state of gentle rejoicing? Well, verse 5 continues, the Lord is near. And it's another reminder then to keep our eyes on that which is of real importance. The fact that we worship and serve the reigning king who is in control. He will bring about his cosmic purpose and he is near. Our Kent Hughes has helpfully summarized this, that it is a declaration that God's nearness, which energizes Paul's commands, because both the Philippians' joy and their gentleness, as well as the following command of do, be, of do not be anxious, are grounded in the fact that the Lord is at hand. Kent Hughes says, his nearness causes us to rejoice. His nearness affects our gentleness. And his nearness allays anxiety. The Lord is near. So rejoice. The Lord is near. So be gentle. The Lord is near. Verse 6 will go on. Do not be anxious. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And verse 6 picks it up. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. You see, confident of who God is, confident of his ongoing activity, confident of his tangible presence, that he is near, we can bring our requests to him. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, we can turn to the ultimate ruler of the universe and let him hear our concerns, our anxieties, our worries, our fears. We, we carry our concerns to him and we make those concerns known. We present our requests to him. And in doing so, therefore, we don't have to experience the anxiety of carrying those things on our own. We present them to, to the ruler of the universe. And therefore, we know his help and we know his nearness. And so we can trust that he will help. And notice as we come in this attitude of prayer, notice the all-encompassing description of how we're to pray. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation or in everything, present your request to God. We come before our Father with everything. There's, there's nothing that he cannot hear. There's no situation that's too big for him to deal with. Or there's no worry too small for him to understand or care about. He is our God. He is near. So come to him. and Present your request before him. And how do we come? We come by prayer, petition, and with thanksgiving. See, we come to ask. We come to request. We come to, with thanksgiving. And, and, and how can we do all three of those things at once? How can we come with prayer, requests, and with thanksgiving? Well, it's because of who we're coming to. Whatever need it is that we are bringing before our God, when we recognize that it is our God who we're bringing our need to, we've got plenty of reasons to be thankful. Even in the, 
the moments of deepest trial and deepest burden and deepest heartbreak, we have reasons to be thankful. If in that moment the only reason we can think of is the fact that, Lord, I can come to you, thank you, we come with thanksgiving. Let alone the the myriad of things that we can look back over our lives that he has done in us that we can trust him with, let alone all of scripture which shows us his goodness, his grace, his grace, his his ever-present help. So we can always come with thanksgiving and in thanksgiving present our requests to him by prayer and petition. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the ESV has that phrase, let your requests be made known to God. Maybe that strikes you as a little odd. Does that mean that God doesn't know our request? We have to give them to him as if they're new information that he now has to work with? Well, I don't think that fits with the Bible's teaching of our all-knowing, all-sufficient, all-powerful God. So why should we present, why should we make known our requests to him? Well, well, for anyone who's had the experience of doing that, of making known your requests to God, you will know the freedom and, and the gift of having to speak out those requests to him. There's something in that act of coming before him and verbalizing, either in our heart or actually with our mouths, verbalizing our need, verbalizing what it is we're coming to him for. It helps us to see the unburdening that takes place. It, it helps us to see the dependence that we're coming with God in, coming to God with. It, it's not just about saying that a, a, a prayer that, that doesn't come from our heart, but no, when we present and make known our requests before God, we have to then verbalize that need and verbalize, God, I need you here. I'm asking for your help. I don't know what to do. I am lost without you. You are king and I trust in you. And so having to actually verbalize that is a way in which we can know his help and his dependence. So it helps us to consider who we're coming before. And in doing that, we then consider how capable he is to deal with that thing. And so we can can act in dependence and surrender. We present our request to God. So, so that's been a, a, a rapid tour of verses four, five, and six. But, but I want to try to keep the flow in our mind. So Paul here has been encouraging the church to rejoice. And that life of joy overflows to gentleness and reasonableness to those around you. And then we can live that joyful life, whatever our circumstances, because we know the nearness of our God. And because we know his nearness, we don't need to carry anxiety on our own. No, we can present our requests to him and therefore know the freedom and release of his help. And and so the flow of all of that then ends in verse 7 with, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, it's the peace that God brings when we present our joyful prayers to him that guards our hearts and our minds. And I do find that fascinating because I see a link back to Paul's instruction to Euodia and Syntyche, who were compelled to be of the same mind in the Lord in verse 2. And now here in verse 7, we see the promise of our minds and our hearts being guarded by that peace. And so what I think this shows is that part of being in the same mind of the, in the Lord, or being like-minded, as he explained in chapter 2, is helped as we pray. If we want to be in the same mind as our brothers and sisters, we pray. We focus our attention on our king. 
And as we do, and as we do that together, then we, are, then we will know the unity of his mind with us. And we will know the guarding of, his mind, of, his, um, of our hearts and our minds by his, by his grace. And so as we rely on God's help, as we seek his direction, as we thank him for his work, as we appreciate his sovereign control in our lives, then our minds and our heart are kept in union with his. And as we do that together, then we notice and experience the unity of our brothers and sisters too. And so if we want to know peace, pray. Pray joyfully, thankfully, consistently, dependently pray. And as you do, allow the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. There might be nothing about your situation that makes, that, that makes peace a sensible conclusion. But when we pray to the God who hears, pray to the God who is near, then the peace, his peace, transcends all understanding, guards our hearts and our minds. And so this peace is active. And so we can know that individually and know that together as a community. And so we know what it means to be at peace with one another through a unity of mind. We know the guarding of peace through joyful prayer. And the final section that we'll look at this morning is how we can be in the presence of peace through right thinking and living. In this presence of peace, we find in the the final version, verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. (coughs) Excuse me. This This is the same God that we've been celebrating all morning. This God of peace who will be with us This is the same God who we can bring our concerns to because he's sovereign. This is the same God who who is himself the God of peace. He is the perfect embodiment of peace. He is the giver of peace. He is the, the source of peace. He's where we find it all and he makes himself known to us. This is the God who is near. And the God of peace will be with you. And and how do we know the God of peace? Well, we see this in verse 8. And nine. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. So there's two main things here that we can see. And it's how we can, if we want to know the God of peace with us, we must think rightly and live rightly. And so much of this passage has also been about our minds, hasn't it? We've seen that theme of peace going through, but we've seen the, 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 the teaching on our minds and how, what we are to fill our minds with. Yuri and Sintike were, reconciled, were to be reconciled by being of one mind. Our hearts and minds are guided by the peace of God as we joyfully bring dependent prayers to him. And now Paul unpacks, well, what are we to fill our minds with? And we see this in verse 8. And it's quite a list, isn't it? Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Think about such things. I'm very sorry to say that that list doesn't always show what dominates my headspace. Living in this world with its pressures and tensions and expectations and all the issues that are surrounding us, how are we to think about this list? As we think about the world we live in and think about the things that consume our minds, are we drawn to things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy? 
maybe this even makes us think, well, if I'm to think on these things, I'm going to have to remove myself from the world because the world is full of distractions of the things that breed envy in us, the things that, the, the scandals that we love to hear about in other people, the, 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 the bitterness that we carry from other people's hurt from us, maybe even from years ago. Those lust-inducing images are thoughts that we consume. The, the pride that we love to stoke by looking at the failure of others. These are the things that can fill our minds if we let them. These are some of the things certainly that vie for the attention of our minds. So how can we turn our attention to everything that is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy? How are we to think about these things? Does it sound unrealistic? Well, well I'm so encouraged by the fact that Paul uses the term whatever is six times in this verse. Whatever is pure, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is lovely. And the, and the reason that I find that encouraging is that it shows that we have to make a choice to think on those things. That if we are to think on whatever is true, it must also be possible to think on whatever is not true. But the choice for the follower of Jesus is to think on what is true and avoid what is untrue. See, there are are things that aren't true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. But the command here is to choose what is those things. To choose the things which are on that list. To allow those things to be the focus of our minds. In fact, Paul says, think about such things. Choose to think about such things. Choose, therefore, not to think about others. See, Paul isn't assuming because Jesus doesn't assume, the Bible doesn't assume that following Jesus immunizes us from the pressures and strains and temptations of the world. No, but what the Bible does call us to is to choose the path that Jesus would take. Walk in the footprints that he left before us, as we saw from the second day of our devotional. Avoid the paths that lead to anything that isn't true, that isn't noble, that isn't right, that isn't pure, that isn't admirable. Choose the better path by following Jesus. And we can begin to see the link here between thinking and living, can't we? If we are to think about these things, it will impact the way we live. Right thinking, as Paul described here, will enable right living. And living rightly will foster right thinking. The two go hand in hand. And Paul's laid out this pattern of how we are to engage in right thinking. And then in verse 9, he concludes with how we can then know right living. And it's an echo from our our previous session in in Philippians chapter 3, when Paul encouraged the church to follow his example as he followed Christ. In verse 9, effectively, Paul is saying, if you want to know how to live rightly, listen to what I've taught you and live how I've acted in front of you. He says in verse 9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And what have we seen in Paul? Well, we've seen passion for the gospel. We've seen endurance through suffering. We've seen humble service for his king. We've seen a love, a deep love for God's people. And so we see that that living a faithful life of discipleship with the God of peace tangibly present with us is an intensely active way to live. That following Jesus is not about retreating from the world to simply wait for Christ to call us home or to come back again. It is not about seeking to avoid contact with the world around us out of some sort of misplaced fear 
or, or maybe even some harsh judgmentalism. And so we keep everything at an arm's length. No, we actively live out. We put into practice what we've seen and heard and learned. We, put, we live out our faith in the world around us, even when that will bring suffering, persecution, difficulty, pain. We continue to live out that life of joyful obedience by putting into practice everything he teaches us, how he directs us to live. And of course, please hear me, of course that will mean there will be times when we take our stand on Scripture. Of course there will be times when we make God's good ways known to the world around us. Of course we want to avoid any way that's going to lead us into sin or temptation as we blend in with the world. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we live in the world by practicing what Jesus teaches us. We decisively and consciously and and joyfully follow Jesus in the world that he has placed us in. We put into practice what he has taught us through his word. And we can do that all, even when it's difficult. Remember, Paul is writing to a bunch of people here facing persecution. He's writing himself from being under arrest. Paul knows what it is to live in opposition, but he knows what it is to live faithfully and joyfully and obediently, even when there's opposition there. And the reason that we can do all of that is because the God of peace is with us. God is with us. The source of our joy. The one who has secured eternity for us. He is with us. The one who will come again. The one who will reign in all his glory. The one who will indeed rightly judge sin and all wrongdoing. The one who raised Christ from the dead. The one who indwells us with his spirit. The one who is living and active. This is the God who is with us. So take courage. You are not on your own. You have brothers and sisters here urging one another on and you have the gift of the Holy Spirit within you. The God of peace is with you. And so live a life of faithful discipleship, putting into practice everything God teaches us. In other words, we can be in the presence of peace himself by right thinking and right living. So as, as Paul begins to wind up his letter to the Philippians, these, these believers who he loves so dearly, he compels them to live at peace, at peace with one another. And that, that unity that comes from being united in Christ, he, to live at peace knowing this joyful dependence in prayer, and therefore that peace guards the hearts and minds of those that Paul loves. And therefore, he's encouraging them to live in the presence of peace himself, with our hearts and minds consumed with him. And we live that way. We live at peace, knowing the God of peace with us, whatever it costs, whatever we may face, because he is our king. And the God of peace will be with us. Let's pray together as we close. Our Father, sometimes we, uh, we, we recognize, God, that sometimes we read your word uh, and we see joy in it, we see truth in it, and, and yet, Father, we find it difficult to let it plant in our hearts. And so we, we see these wonderful truths like rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, and, and Lord, our, our hearts want to, but we struggle to do that. We struggle to put it into practice. We struggle, Father, to live with the reality that you are near, 
We struggle, therefore, to live gently. We struggle, Father, to to not be anxious about anything. We struggle, Father, to, to think and live rightly before you. And therefore, Father, we struggle to be at peace, at peace with ourselves and our relationship with you, at peace with others, at peace with our brothers and sisters even at times. And Father, this morning we, we pray that you would forgive us. Lord, for those times that we have actively sought another way than the path that you have sought to lead us down. Father, we, we, we confess those times when we have, when we have carried uh, bitterness and resentment of a brother and sister in the Lord. And allowed that, therefore, to distract us from the mission that you've called us collectively to. Father, I pray that you would bring restoration to your hearts. That you would bring reconciliation, Father, I pray. That we would know joy together. Thank you, Father, that you equip us for these things. That it is because you are near that we can know that peace together. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Father, uh, to, to be guarded by your peace. Lord, that as we bring our requests before you, as we lay our hearts before you, Father, that you would indeed uh, wrap your protection around us. Uh, Lord, individually, that we would follow you, therefore, faithfully and collectively as a body, that you would indeed protect the unity here and keep us, Father, keep us focused on you and the mission that you've called us to, to make your good news known in this community. And Lord, I pray that, that each and every one of us who claim you as our Lord and our Savior would indeed know your help to live wisely and think wisely. Father, that we would surrender our thoughts to you. That we would take the way out of temptation uh, that you provide when those tempting moments come. That you would help us, Father, in a world where uh, where there are so many other things vying for our attention, would you help us, God, as we seek what is true and noble and right and pure and admirable and praiseworthy and excellent. And Lord, we know that ultimately we find all of those things in you. And so would you help us, God, to focus our hearts and our minds on you and your wonderful truth. And as we do so, would we then live that out in a way that compels those around us to come to you as their Lord and Savior. God, we recognize our desperate need for your help as we seek to do this. So would you indeed come, we pray. Equip us and receive all the glory as we seek to live our lives for your name. And it's in that precious name we pray. Amen.